Welcome to the Misfit Stars podcast. I'm Shannon Curtis. And I'm Jamie Hill. Welcome, listeners. Welcome, Shannon. Hi, honey. Welcome's a weird thing to say, I guess. It's your podcast. I live here. Yeah. (laughs) Who are you to welcome me to my own podcast, sir? (laughs) Shannon smacks me with a lace glove. Oh, no. Whoa. We're about to have a duel. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. First ever Misfit Stars podcast, Victorian style duel. Wow. I don't even. I don't it's, have a new, a, it's a new and unsettling feature on the Misfit Stars podcast. I don't even have a gun, so. No, no, I, we're using swords. Oh, sword, Victorian yeah, yeah. swords. Yeah, I, I don't have swords either. I mean, they had, they had guns back then. We digress. Hi, sweetie. Oh, hi, everyone. <laughs> don't mind us. It's great to have you here. Later on in this episode, we are continuing our little mini-series on sobriety and recovery. And it is with great trepidation that I announce that this week we're talking about my origin story. Yeah. Origin stories are so much easier when they're the other person's. Oh, are you feeling a little trepidatious? No, you know, I'll be fine. Okay. I'll be fine. I just always want to be of service. Yeah. Maximal service uh-huh. when I share my story. Of course. And I'll just worry a little bit. What if I'm not maximally of service? Which is nerdy. Well, all you have to do is share your story. That's, That's true. All you have to do. I know. It's just got so many moving parts. I don't want to get anything wrong. I think I'll do okay, though. Okay. Yeah. Misfit Stars, people, is how you support our work. <gasps> so, to those of you who are already using the Misfit Stars supportive community as a vehicle for supporting the work that Shannon and I do, Ugh, thank you so you're much. Amazing. Yeah, seriously. I mean, the net result of that is that we get a direct deposit every month that is the sum total of everyone's monthly recurring contributions. Mm-hmm. It helps pay bills around here. Oh, Over this time of pandemic and work being really weird for Mm -hmm. artists, this is literally the thing that has allowed us to remain like living in our house and not of having to like, we didn't have to like sell it and move into a cardboard box Mm -hmm. under the, under the river. No, under (laughs) the bridge. That's pretty dramatic. By the river. Yeah, okay. Not under the river. (laughs) That would be too dramatic. Under the bridge. Right. Your support is the thing that keeps this train moving. Um, And we are able to keep doing this work, Mm -hmm. the work that we do, this podcast, the music that we make, the mentorship that we do, the community building, all the stuff that we do under the umbrella of Misfit Stars. We get to keep doing that with our time because of your support. Yeah. So thank you for that. And it's become increasingly non-transactional in nature, our work has, thanks to your support, Mm -hmm. because it's created this situation where not every single thing we do, we have to figure out how to extract money from. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Because, you know, there's a limited amount of time in one's life. And when you're a married pair of working artists without the support of a community, you kind of have to spend every moment you're awake trying to figure out how to keep surviving. Or how to make money from the stuff you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So like this supportive community is, it's amazing. It's been an absolutely just transformational part of our lives and our our work and our careers. So thank you so much. Those of you who are already part of the Misfit Stars community, I think you were going to say something to those of you who are not yet part of the Misfit Stars community. I absolutely was, which is you just heard all the great things that we're able to do in our lives and the good it's bringing to us. Thank you. uh, You know, from the people who are supporting our work to those of you who aren't yet supporting our work, we would just love to invite you to consider doing that. Would you? It's a recurring monthly kind of thing. You just get signed up. It's at Misfit stars.com slash support misfitstars.com slash support and it's like you know a ten dollar or five dollar or twenty dollar or if you're witch a hundred dollars like you could do that if you're witch you said witch (laughs) 
no. Which uh, it, it's if seasonal. You're, if you're rich, yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm and I'm. This is like I'm getting off topic here, but I'm surprised you don't have your Halloween <sighs> uh, sound machine. That's great, ready to go. So you tell people yeah. about the stuff it's they a, need to do. It's Hold a on. Choose your own adventure scenario with uh, the misfitstars.com/support. It is. Uh, you can you can decide what amount you want to to give each month, and uh, it's just up to you. So misfitstars.com slash support. Uh, you sign up, you choose your amount, you get plugged in, and when we receive your uh, your subscription, the notice of your subscription, we will send you an invitation to our private Misfit Stars social network, which is awesome because, mm-hmm. you know what? Yesterday, day before we were recording this on Tuesday, uh, Facebook was down for six hours. So was Instagram. And you know what wasn't down? The Misfits are a social network. That's right. So you know what? Uh, I think it's 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 the future. The future is the Misfit Star social network because who knows what's going to happen to Facebook? You know, I read the most interesting uh, piece today about Facebook, which is that it has entered what they described as the beginnings of a downward spiral of a company. Yeah. The kind of thing where things get start getting increasingly bad and like brain, like there's a brain drain, like talent starts to leave the company because they don't want to be associated with a toxic company like yeah. that. And so they start to go other places. Yeah. And the company gets increasingly more, and, and users leave too. Right. And so the company keeps getting increasingly more desperate and they start doing worse and worse and worse things to try to maintain their cash flow and suck the user base in even harder. It starts getting worse. Yeah. Like they're starting I'm trying to see signs of that happening. Of course we are. Yeah. Of course we are. Facebook ostensibly could not be around in the way that we currently know it in the next, I mean, few years. I will throw a party. Yeah. <laughs> we love the fact that we've been able to connect with so many people around the world via Facebook. Yes. But I'll tell you what, uh, the internet will not go anywhere. I was having this very discussion today with a friend, um, you know, because apropos of the Facebook and Instagram outage, mm-hmm. they were like, you know, they they were saying, my friend, that, you know, they had all these people sort of jumping for joy that Facebook was down and then being sad when it came back. And she was kind of saying, oh, I think that's kind of BS because social media is what saved me as a teen. I was able to connect with people on. And then she named all of these different, like, oh. non-social media things on the internet that are where like right? she was able to connect with people. And I pointed out, I was like, those aren't social media. Those are forums and um, those are websites. Like there's other ways to aggregate community without having an evil algorithm that monetizes your anger. Totally. And well, and also what you just said was that there were several places. Yes. On the, and what Facebook has done is that when somebody, when another company starts to do something that's gaining traction, they just gobble them up and buy them. It's monopolistic. So yeah. there's not even room for other companies and like several companies to take the the place of this yeah. in our lives and it's it is it is toxic and bad so i did i did rejoice for those six hours yesterday <laughs> yeah seriously uh, you know you and i are both old enough to remember a time before before there were companies like this but when there was still the internet and it was just this oh, yeah. robust interesting place and you had to kind of go to the websites you wanted to go to to connect with the other people who wanted to connect as other spokes around that hub right you know yeah. but it was really disaggregated I'm well, so excited for people 20 years younger than us to experience that in some form you know <laughs> I hope that they get to sure well you know uh, there was that we're getting so far off topic but that's okay it's, it's, it's relevant it's our damn it's, podcast it is, it is uh, current events related 
targeted. So, but the, there's that woman who testified before Congress today, who was a former Facebook employee, the one who leaked all that, all those documents yes. to the Wall Street Journal. I think it was yes. all the internal documents that like are really damning in terms of like they know they know that uh, Instagram and the way they have their algorithm set up with Instagram is contributing in a huge way to uh, teen girls feeling badly about themselves. No, no, feeling suicidal, and I was, specifically. I mean, I was going to get there, okay. but yes. Yeah. Like, like, bad, like body image related stuff and yeah. feeling, you know, uh, you know, badly enough about themselves that they're contemplating suicide because yeah. of their experience on Instagram. Facebook, which owns Instagram, knows this. They mm-hmm. knew they had the data to show this and they decided to sweep that data under the rug and do nothing about it because they wanted to keep those clicks coming with the algorithm the way it was because it makes them money. So like, anyway, but my point is, she, this woman who testified, uh, uh, I heard a, a quote from her saying that she's like, I love Facebook. I just don't want Facebook to ruin itself. And, yeah. and, it, and basically she's like, it is. Like it's, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm with her on that. Like I love being able to be connected with people there. Mm-hmm. That, there's part of it that I really love, yeah. but it has become a monster yes. that is destroying the fabric of our society mm-hmm. globally. Yep. And specifically in this country, it is destroying the fabric of our democracy. And civil discourse. Yeah, it's just, I mean, so yeah. Anyway, Facebook. So when Facebook was down for six hours, the Misfit Stars private social network was not. Yeah. We were just up and running and doing great. We are just doing our thing. <laughs> It was great. It was great. Um, yeah. So did you rectify things and get your October sound machine? Uh, that's great. Oh, yeah. I'm so, so glad. good. Here it is, our first podcast of the month of October. Man. And Jamie's got his sound machine, which is, by the way, in the shape of a coffin. Yes. In case you were wondering. It's a black coffin with silver accents and the silver accents are made specifically to look as though this coffin has seen some use like oh. maybe it was in the ground and got dug up oh definitely that's kind of the vibe oh yeah and then it has a red speaker on the front and it has 15 buttons and you're gonna why hear- not 16 because it's shaped like a coffin and it narrows at the oh. bottom and they couldn't fit four on the bottom row. I see yeah. well you're gonna hear lots of those sound cues over this next month it's gonna be so great you're gonna enjoy that Oh, yeah. Misfitstars.com slash support. Misfitstars.com slash support. You know what to do. I don't or have, else. I don't have the yeah. right microphone proximity with this uh, headset microphone. Oh. You got to really get close up on the mic to do that, to do that scary, scary voice. voice. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, how about some announcements? Yes. Let's do some announcements. Do you have right. a song for us about that? Announcements. 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 There's no, so no, no, come on. No, but there's so many announcements. I just wanted to get right to them. Like, there's a lot of announcements. But how can we do the announcements without the song? Announcements. 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 Is that so much better for yes, you? Yes, it's very much better. Okay, fine. Even if it was sarcastically <laughs> slow. I liked it. <laughs> okay, there's so many announcements. I don't even know what order to go in. I, there's Let's just, just go so in order they're in. It's perfect. Okay, fine. So the first announcement is that uh, 2020-101, the album. That's not the first announcement. That's the second announcement. No, it's not. Oh, I just scrolled right past it. Yes. Fine, you go. Okay, the first announcement oh is that the remix album is coming out on all streaming services this Friday. Oh, that's so exciting. That's so exciting. So it'll be on Spotify. It'll be on Apple Music. Those are the biggies if you're in the U.S. For our international listeners, it'll be on Deezer. It'll be on whatever the hell else you listen to. It's going to be worldwide on every single streaming platform. So 
Go listen to it. It's really nifty. It's 10 artists who are not us taking Shannon's vocal from one of her songs and recontextualizing it with their own music. And it's just this cool, groovy trip. You could put it on while you're working out. You could put it on while you're, I don't know, making dinner. Do whatever the hell you want. Point is, it's good. Whenever you listen to music, that's when you could put it on. That's that's a really (laughs) great time to do it. Yeah. It's now, a, say, for example, at the time that you wouldn't normally listen to music, we actually wouldn't recommend it then. Like Shannon said, really just listen to this at a music listening time. I think yeah, that would just be better. Totally. Yeah. We don't it's, want you to have some like weird accident because yeah. you're listening to music at the wrong time. Then you blame us. Right now. It's not our fault. Don't do that. Okay. It's a great album. It's And her song becomes a remix, which mm-hmm. I mean, all the songs on this remix album were songs that were originally on our album and her whisper becomes a storm mm-hmm. from 2020. Yes. And, um, you have, if you were, if you were listening to this podcast back in the spring, or if you were paying attention to our spring fundraiser that we did for our friend, Michelle, we highlighted each of these songs. Uh, we, we did a bunch of highlights of these. And so you'll, you've, you've maybe heard them before, yep. but now they're going to be available everywhere for you to listen to. Um, if you are a member of misfit stars and you want a CD copy, we will send you one. Do you we'll, just need to let us know? We'll just freaking put it in the mail to That's you. That's right. Um, anyone else who would like to purchase a CD copy, um, we'll have links available for you. That will let you know when on release day where you can get those. Yes. Um, okay. Second announcement. Yes. Okay. All right. Back to where I started because I just messed up. Yeah. Uh, 2020-101, the album, mm-hmm. is having its CD and streaming album release on Friday, October 22nd, so just a few weeks away. Um, we are making a limited run of CDs for this. Uh, you can message us if you want us to reserve you one. Again, if you're a Misfit Stars member, we'll just send you one. Um, we'll also let you know uh, where you can buy one when it gets closer to the date. Um, but I'm super excited about this album. Like, it... These again, all these songs we debuted as we were writing and releasing them back mm-hmm. in the spring, between February sixteenth or so. Precisely when we, when February sixteenth. Started the project, yeah. you know, once every ten days for one hundred one days. That's the one hundred one part of twenty twenty one hundred one. All the songs. In case you're new here, uh, all the songs in this album were written on themes that I sort of like sifted through and found when I collected a whole bunch of stories from people in our community, our online community, uh, about their experience of the year 2020. So there were 11 themes that popped up as the most sort of common, and I wrote 11 songs on each of those themes, and that's why the album is called 2020-101, because we did them once every 10 days for 101 days, blah, blah, blah. Also... When you listen to the album, it's kind of like a little 101 course on the year 2020. Whoa. Which is a really fun play on so words. It's like a play on words. Way to go, Jamie, coming up with that. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's good. Um, so we, we've been finalizing the masters for this. And so even though the songs themselves have been done largely for months, there was just to get them to make them all an album to like a cohesive thing. We've had to, Jamie's been doing a ton of work on this over the last couple of weeks to finalize all that. And so we've been, you know, part of that process is always that we take it in the car and we listen mm-hmm. in the car. And, uh, and, and so just to make sure that everything's feeling like an album, yeah. you know, and it's been fun to be able to do that. Cause I haven't yeah. really been with these songs that much over the last number of months. Um, but to sit, to sit there and listen, bopping along in the car to the entire album, it's really a rewarding experience. Yeah. I really, I like, 
I'm not saying this in like a braggadocio kind of way, but I'm really proud of this album. Like yeah. I really like it. And having had a couple months between finishing all the songs and the recordings and now, it's it's easier to see, to see that and say that too. Like, oh man, yeah. I like this a lot. Good record, like it too. And basically the deal is, so like we spent the last number of days just like taking the car, making sure everything sounded good. Today, this afternoon, we had to drop the car off for routine service. So it means the album has to be done. Oh, that's right, because there's no more car listening. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no car, I guess the record's done. No more changes to make, Jamie. Can't do it. No. Hey, so in celebration of that album release, Mm -hmm. um, the next announcement on my list is that we're doing uh, a virtual concert, a virtual streaming concert. <laughs> on Saturday, October 23rd. Um, it's going to be at 7 p.m. Pacific time. That's 10 p.m. Eastern. Mm-hmm. Um, the concert itself is going to run about an hour. Yep. And we're going to be streaming it uh, on YouTube. If you um, if you go to my website right now, shannoncurtis.net, mm-hmm. and you look at the tour calendar, you will see a link, or you'll see in the tour dates, uh, this virtual concert. And in that in that item and on those tour dates, there's the link for the YouTube. It's just on the front um, of your front page of your website because right, the, all the newest tour dates go on that little widget on the front. Yeah. So what you can Shannon do net, right? Yeah, yeah. What you can do is when you find that YouTube link, um, click it and YouTube does this cool thing where it's like set reminder and you hit that little set reminder button mm. and then you don't have to like I mean, put it on your calendar too, but you know, but YouTube will help you remember the day of the concert. Hey, it's actually great. Like somebody from YouTube actually comes to your house (laughs) and knocks on your door at 6.50 PM. (laughs) I I forget how they remind you. If it's like an email or maybe there's like a a pop-up on your phone. I'm not sure. I can't remember, but it's really smooth how they do that. So set yourself a reminder and we hope to see you at the the virtual concert on the 23rd. There's a rock that gets thrown through your window and it has a note tied around it that says concert starting in 15 minutes. And as you run to your window in horror, you look out to see a, a Google van fleeing up the street. Oh my gosh, that's really... That's very spooky, honey. You want to play a thing to oh, yeah. hear some sound box? Yeah. That's not actually how it happens, but I no. didn't need to say that. Hey, so um, after the concert, yes. that same night, Saturday, October 23rd. This little noisemaker is just going. This sound stop. goes for like 50 seconds. Same, I've only hit it once. I know. The same night, uh, right after the concert is over, we're going to have a uh, a Misfit Stars exclusive after party. So if you're a member of Misfit Stars, um, we've got an event already set up in the private social network for you to find the Zoom link. We're going to hop on Zoom as soon as the concert's over and just hang out with y'all um, for a little while online after the concert's over. It should be fun. Yeah, have have be you great. ever had an after party on Zoom? <laughs> Woo! We're going to do that. Um, it'll be fun. Uh... I'm, I'm sort of like announcements out right now, but there is still another... I'll do the next one. Okay, it's fine. you do the next one. So we are on a personal song blitz. Uh, personal songs are this amazing thing that Shannon does where she will write a song for you to give as a gift to a loved one. And the song is about that loved one or about a relationship you have, you have with them or about like an event in your life or something you did together. It can be really about anything that you want to commemorate in a deeply personal song experience. Yeah. Shannon writes it and she records it. Uh, typically the recordings are just like these really moving, stripped down piano and voice, very intimate, very emotional. She hits every single one of these out of the park, you guys. Aww. It's good that I'm doing this announcement because I can brag about you in a way that would be <laughs> crass were you to do it about yourself. That's good. Imagine if Shannon were doing this announcement. She's like, you don't understand how good I am at this. 
I have this amazing ability to really just connect exactly to the emotion inside your situation. I'm so good at this. Can you imagine me ever saying something Oh no, it'd be like terrible. Oh my God. But really people, she's so good at this. And we have been booking these. It's like people usually do it for the holidays. Like a, it can be like the big Christmas gift that you give your spouse. That's a common thing that we do around the holidays. Mm-hmm. It is a hit it out of the park special gift for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people do them for other reasons as well. Anniversaries, birthdays, commemor- commemorating a loved one who has passed on. We mm-hmm. just did one for like a hundred year old lady who died. And it was like a, this amazing experience to be able to celebrate her life in that way. And yeah. like live like in the song, like looking back on some of the cool stuff Stuff she did she had an amazing life and there's all different things that you can celebrate with these the reason that we're starting to announce this like last month and, and continuing now is that we realize that we're always so tired usually from tour we get home we're like oh we're not going to do it now and then all of a sudden it's like you know it's like november 2nd and we're like oh my gosh we have to do we have to announce personal songs and then i think that like we've heard from people we've heard feedback like i wish you would let us know earlier i need time to plan ahead well this is us doing that this is us planning ahead so you can reach out to shannon uh you can just email her at shannon at misfitstars.com and you can ask her for more information on this we had somebody reach out to us uh six days ago apropos of hearing last week's podcast That's right. they booked themselves a personal song uh and we're so excited to write this personal song for this person, and it's just going to be a great situation. Yes. We're so excited about it. Uh, this could be you. Uh, just because we booked a couple doesn't mean we're, we're full yet. We've got spots for 10. Yep, and which means we have, I think at this point, eight left, and that's that's great. Still plenty of time to get yours in. I imagine we'll, our schedule will fill up, but there's still time, so you know, if you need to think about it a bit more, do, and but also, you know, to keep help, thinking. To help you think about it, we, are, we have started, uh, last week we started this new temporary feature on the podcast, which we're going to do at the, the end of this first half, mm-hmm. um, this new personal song spotlight feature. And so this week we're going to be highlighting, um, spotlighting, excuse me, mm-hmm. a song called Trees, uh, which I wrote uh, in 2018, I think it was, for a mom to give to her daughter. So mm. this is just to help you kind of think about like the kind of person in your life that you might want to give this to. Last week we highlighted a a, a song that I had made for a couple. You know, yeah. that's, that's something that we do quite often. But a lot of these songs are for other relationships too. It's not, these are not just love songs is what I'm I'm trying to say right or they are love songs but they're not like romantic love songs it's yeah. you know, th- like this is a definitely like a, i love you songs a mother-daughter love song yeah. yeah so we'll get to that in a little bit uh, mm-hmm. the final announcement oh my gosh so many announcements wow it's just because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in our world there is so the final announcement hashtag blessed oh gosh don't do that <laughs> um the final announcement is that uh Coming up on Sunday, October 17th is our next anti-racist book and movie club. Uh, It's our Misfit Stars anti-racist book and movie club. You have to be a member of Misfit Stars to be in the club. Misfitstars.com slash join. That's right. And you'll be supporting our work. Thanks. Um, And the reason that I wanted to announce this today is that on the 17th of October, we're going to be discussing the first half of Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I wanted to mention it now in case... Some of you haven't yet started reading mm-hmm. those first half chapters. I wanted to just give you a little poke, a little reminder that... You got 10 days. You got 10 days to do that um, because we're going to be discussing the first half. The second half we're going to discuss in November. Um, 
And also, if you're not yet in the, the anti-racist book and movie club, but you want to be, um, if you're in Misfit Stars already, just send one of us a message. We'll send you an invitation. You are welcome to join mm-hmm. for this book discussion. We yes. would love to have you. If you're not yet a member of Misfit Stars, but you want to be part of this book and movie club. Great reason to join. Misfitstars.com slash join. All right. Oh my gosh, we made it through the announcements. <sighs> Jamie. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's me having gone crazy. Because of all the announcements. That's right. Again, I only pushed the button once. So, Jamie, how are you feeling? Well, thank you for asking, sweetheart. Yeah, you're welcome. You know, I feel good. I feel happy. I feel balanced, focused, Mm. stable, uh, excited about the present and the future. I'm in a good space today. I'm so glad. Yeah. Feeling in love with you. Aw. Yeah. Love it. Aw. Just very good. All, All good feelings today. And, you know, it's funny, like when I have bad feelings, there's a lot more to unpack. When I have good feelings, theoretically, there's less to unpack. But I really do credit it, uh, my continuing, ongoing good feeling that Mm. I've been having for the last few weeks to that very rigorous personal inventory exercise I did last month. I've talked about it on the podcast. If you didn't hear that episode and you're interested in what that looks like, I would urge you to go back and listen. I think it's from, I think two weeks ago we discussed that. Yeah, it was sort of like the unofficial beginning of this mini series about sobriety and recovery. But anyway, it's had long lasting repercussions in my life in the way that this kind of personal work can. That's the great thing about it. It's not like I have to do a personal inventory every single week if I want to feel good that week. Mm. Like you can do one. It's kind of like a vaccine. Like you can do (laughs) one and it'll last you a good long while. Occasionally, you might need a booster. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot like a vaccine, yeah, really. Totally. It doesn't last forever, but it lasts a good long while. That's and I'm cool. in that kind of glowy period right oh, now from that. So good. doing good. How are you good. feeling? I'm also doing well. Um, I feel happy. I feel um, hopeful about the present and the future, like you. Mm. Like, I, I feel good about those things. Um, I've been physically just kind of tired. Yeah. Today and also maybe the last couple of days, yeah. but also the seasons, the season has rapidly changed here. And I think that this is a pattern, mm-hmm. like when it gets rainy mm-hmm. and like, like there's gotta be some kind of a link and I should look this up if there's like a link between like a rapid change in barometric pressure and like people being physically tired. Yeah. Cause there's no, there's no like external reason for it. I shouldn't be as tired as I feel, but I'm just a little bit like, Whoa, things are changing or something. And I don't you, know. you and I have both had disruptions to our sleep over the past few yeah. nights. Yeah, just waking up, having trouble getting back to sleep, weird stuff like that. Again, not preoccupied, not not the kind anxious. of thing where no, not not like with our minds spinning on something negative. No. Just boing, 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 lying there awake. Yeah. Four in the morning. What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, but I, but I even though I feel a little tired, I'm I feel I feel good otherwise. So good. hooray. Um that's like the shortest tower we feeling segment we've done in a long time. Because <laughs> we're doing well. <laughs> That's nice. It's good. Hey, yeah. I made, it, I made it for the announcements. That's right. Well, let's fire up the good news machine then. What do you have? I have news from California. And the reason I'm including it in my good news machine is because I really feel like this is how you do it. And I hope this is a template for how things start going in the rest of our country. Let's and it's hear this. It. What is it? Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom this last week issued the first statewide vaccine mandate for K to 12 public schools. For kids. For kids. Kids. This will take effect as soon as vaccines for each age group have full FDA approval. That's out. So as soon as that, uh, you know, 12 to uh, 18 or whatever it is no, gets. 5 to 12. No, 12 to 18. Oh, 12 to 18. It's, not, it's still not fully FDA That's approved. That's right. It's merged. That's not until this month. 
Oh, really? Even the Pfizer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Otherwise, everyone would be doing it. I thought that the Pfizer one was FDA approved across the board, but was it not approved for 12 to 18 year olds? <sighs> like, it's one of those things where they've given it the green light to be approved, but oh. like shots are not going in arms yet. And well, that's, that's that's full FDA approval. Oh. Right? Are we confusing this? Well, like, or, is part, or is there like, you get the full FDA approval and then there's like a waiting period. I don't remember the exact so, mechanism. Okay. So J- Johnson, Johnson, Moderna, and Pfizer all for the longest time had emergency um, emergency approval, essentially. Yeah. And that's when most people got their vaccinations. That was the case. The FDA actually finally approved Pfizer like in August. Mm-hmm. And, but oh, I, but, but this I is for 5 know, to 12, though. But I don't know. Okay, you had said 12 to 18, so I was confused. I'm confused, too, because I can't remember now whether the 12 to 18s were getting their shots under uh, an emergency use authorization or whether they had... I the, don't know. But the point is yes. that... At some point in the near Look, future. Look, people, it's not a news podcast. Don't come to us expecting to, <laughs> quote unquote, know, quote unquote, facts. Okay? We have vague impressions from having skimmed no. headlines. Mostly no, no. we just watch television and drool. We don't watch TV, actually. We don't even have a TV oh, right. in our house. I mean, we have a TV that we watch streaming things on occasionally. It lives in the basement, But though. yeah, anyway, anyway, I digress. The point is that in the very near future, there is going to be an, a fully FDA-approved vaccine for kids of all ages That's beginning right. at age five. Which is K. Right, which is kindergarten. So they are going to, in California, once that happens, require kids who want to come to school to have those vaccinations. And this is no different than... The other list of vaccinations you have to have there's to like come a, to public school. There's like 11 of them, people. Yeah. There's measles, there's mumps, there's rubella, there's tetanus, there's polio, yeah. on and on and on. There's all this stuff that we have all, for the entire duration of our lives, had to get vaccinated for before we go to school. Yep. It's uncontroversial. We all do it. That's it. Period. And now COVID is going to be in there too. Right. Period. Yeah. Which is great. And you can't like do some bullshit like quote unquote religious exemption where your religion is you're a cop you know what I mean with a bad attitude (laughs) what does a cop have anything to do with this that's like the newest thing that's happening right now because like there's all these vaccine mandates and police departments and fire departments are the worst actors in fighting these like police unions and firefighter unions are like fighting these vaccine mandates and I think it's just because cops don't like being told what to do I think not being not liking being told what to do is a big reason a lot of people become a cop right they like doing the telling Mm -hmm. and so you know like so a lot of them are doing like these quote unquote religious exemptions but there was like one police department that I saw a report on this week in the paper where like a third of the members of the department are trying to claim religious exemptions really you guys a third of you also what religion what religion is actually saying that they don't want you to get a COVID vaccination. I don't. I don't even know of a single one. Yeah. I don't know of. of I, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Well, it's an anti-COVID religion, Shannon. I guess so. Yeah. Um, that's highly disappointing that people who are ostensibly public servants are not interested in doing a very simple, easy, and free thing for the public health. Not so much the public to, good. Not so much to protect and serve, and maybe more to arrive and infect yeah. that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, Right. In fact, uh, I'm really glad about your good news. Thank about you. California schools. <laughs> Great news. Very good news. I hope that the rest of the country follows suit soon as well. Yeah, I can't imagine too. that they won't. The mandates are working. That's yeah. another thing. Is that like the, you know, these vaccine mandates that have gone in place over the last few weeks? They're actually working. You know, the headlines tend to say like, you know, there were like, you know. 
a hundred people left their jobs at this airline because of the vaccine mandate without failing, with failing to mention that that's like, like less than a percentage point of the total employees. Like it's just, the point, the point is that a hundred people left because they were, they didn't want to get the vaccine, but it's at a company of 28,000 people, like (laughs) 0.23%. Exactly. Okay, man, whatever. The point is that like the vast majority of people are getting vaccinated and like the stragglers are getting vaccinated because of the mandates and they're working. So yay. That's how we're going to get out of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, You know how else uh, that executive order about uh, vaccine mandate dates for businesses with more than 100 employees, that's getting drafted and it's going to go live really, really, really soon. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's great. Tangential, um, but also cool. My good news machine is also COVID related and that it is news that just came out today that the FDA has authorized a new rapid at-home COVID-19 antigen test. Wow. Which is awesome. Um, it's, they were saying that, that once this goes online, that it should double the country's at-home testing capacity, which is amazing. Like we were just having this conversation earlier today. Like there's a friend who's going to be um, in from out of state and, you know, having a friend come visit who's been in airports and in airplanes and with lots of people, like it feels a little bit fraught yeah. to have somebody come visit. But if there was a, a access to at-home testing that we could just do testing real quick and like then we could feel safer about the risk. Yeah, she could just show up at our house. We could have her stand on the porch, do a test. And if she comes up positive, turn your ass around and get the hell off my porch. <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh my gosh. We're giving out antigen tests for Halloween this year. Oh my gosh. Trick or treat. It's a trick. Here, take this test. Man, yeah. we're going to get our house egged and TP'd. <laughs> Anyway, and we will deserve it. That's my good news. I really, I, I think that this this whole testing thing, if we can ramp up this like easy access to at home testing, it will really help us feel this winter like we're less cooped up and isolated. Yes, like because we actually have something we can do to feel safer about gathering with family and friends. Seriously, and that would be really really nice. Because they say that like. COVID can be in your system for two to three days before a test like will right. do a positive. Yeah. So say you want to have dinner with friends on a Saturday, everyone take the test on Tuesday. You know what I mean? Yeah, and totally. if you t- if and, and it, assuming you everything turns out good, or actually no, you stop hanging out with other people on Tuesday. You take the test Friday, and then you know yeah, if you're good to go for totally. Saturday or not. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. How great. How great. Um, this week, we didn't do a whole lot, but just get these albums finalized. True. Uh, you did some home improvement tasks. So did I. Yeah, we did. There was painting. There was cleaning. There was organizing. Yeah, yeah it was mm-hmm, good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I wrapped up not just your record, but also uh, Johnny's record, Trusty Sea Creatures. Oh, they sound, both of them sound really good. They sound really, mm-hmm. really good. I'm super proud of both of them. Awesome. So do you think it's time for Personal Song Spotlight? Oh, let's do the Personal Song Spotlight. Okay, here's the theme song for that. What is it? But you have to imagine that the last word I say is in like 1970s four-part harmony, okay? Okay, uh-huh. Personal song, spotlight. Oh, that's nice. That's good. I, yeah. I, I was imagining the four-part harmony. Yeah. Nice. Okay, what you got? Okay, so this song, this week's song is called Trees. Um, and I wrote this in 2018 um, from a mom, for a mom to give to her teenage daughter. Um, and her daughter just loves trees. <laughs> No, I'm gonna tell you where the where like how the song came to be. You just hold your horses. Okay. Um, 
But, you know, and I think that she actually ended up giving it to her daughter for like a milestone birthday. Uh, 16 or something. Yeah, something like that. And, you know, she, when she, you know, for all these personal songs, I send people a list of questions to get them writing their interview questions to get them writing about the person for whom the song is, is going to be. Not writing poetically, just writing paragraphs yeah. to you explaining the situation. Yeah. So like in this case, you know, I knew that it was going to be from a mom to her daughter. And so I sent her questions that were appropriate to that relationship to just help, you know, dig into different areas of, of their experience, the relationship and about her, do- just things about her daughter in general mm-hmm. to get to know her so that I could write a song that really reflected her, you yeah. know? Um, and when I got her responses back, it was just so lovely. I mean, clearly this, you know, she, she did a great job of sort of like telling her mother's heart <laughs> for her daughter, you know? Um, mm. And I really got to know this young woman through the eyes of her mom. Um, and uh, in her mom's telling, you know, she she's a, a young person that actually, the, the, she was saying that she, she knew that her daughter was, um, was a deep soul and a resilient little person and a compassionate little person from a very young age. Mm. Like from, from, from the time she was a baby, the, the way that she would cry, <laughs> she was, she described how it was like, she just, you know, it was clear that she was like a, a person who felt very deeply, Aww. you know? And then, you know, there was a time in her early adolescence where she went through a pretty rough time emotionally. Mm. Um, pretty like kind of a dark night of the soul sort of period of time. Yeah. Um, and the mom, you know, uh, had to figure out how to walk alongside her during that. But it really, th- this mom like really described the sense of, of strength and resilience this young woman, this young girl um, really had within herself hmm. to get through that time. And she also just like, shared all the stuff about how now that she's kind of got, she came through that dark time in her life, mm-hmm. how she has made a point as a young person. She wasn't even an adult at this time. I think she might be 18 now, but like, you know, at the time she's still a teenager. She used that experience um, and didn't just like put it in her past and walk, walk away. She decided to use her experience of coming out of that to reach back into the lives of people who are also people younger than her going through similar stuff. Like she volunteered her time to help people who'd been through some of the same kind of things that she had been through as, as an adolescent, which is just That's really so cool. Phenomenal. Yeah. You know? Um, and so I, in reading her story and also knowing where they live, they live in a foresty area, mm-hmm. like in the mountains. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I was just struck by the, this imagery of trees in reading her story. Mm-hmm. And I remembered um, back into my my biology days, my biology major days, um, that there are some species of trees for which seed germination only happens after there have, has been a forest fire. And yeah. that, that new life and regeneration actually requires a death of sorts, like a seed buried and a forest burned. And then I, I learned recently, um, at the time I was reading the, or writing this song, I had recently learned that trees are not, as they appear to be on the surface, independent beings. They constantly communicate with and rely on each other yeah. via these vast underground networks in their root systems. Mm-hmm. And although their births may have started in fire and although the bark of these old trees may bear the evidence of struggle mm-hmm. as they've grown over the centuries. Mm-hmm. Still, every day, uh, they reach up toward the light, mm-hmm. toward life, mm-hmm. 
while holding on to each other underground. Aww. And I really thought that that really was a great representation of this young person that this mom wanted to write a song about, that she's a young person who is reaching fervently toward her life and also reaching back underground to the trees around her. Oh. And so that is where this song, Trees, came from. And we're going to play it for you now. That's a hell of a metaphor, sweetheart. Well, thank you. It was really apt and um, for this particular situation. And so here is the song called Trees. Thank you. 
darkness A secret that you keep with the trees Dang! Man, I love that one. Mm. You know, it's so neat to me because it's not, it, it's, a, it's a song that you wrote specifically for this mom and her daughter and it's so specific to them and to her situation and her life story. Mm. But also just on the merits of being a song, it's just a freaking great song. Oh, thanks. You know what I mean? So like sing-alongable and epic and like that's just <laughs> like a song that you would listen to. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like it's not some weird like only these two people can listen to it kind of thing. It's just a great song. Imagine being the people for whom that was written. Wow. Uh, did, did you get any feedback from the mom when you sent it to her? Oh yeah, of course. She she um, she wrote me. She's like, oh my goodness, Shannon, what an absolute treasure. The song is more perfect than I could ever express properly. Mm. Thank you for putting into words and song what are in my mother's heart <laughs> much much love to you and jamie oh <laughs> that's really cool isn't that sweet <sighs> people so you can get one of these too like you can have shannon do that you can have her write a song like of that caliber <laughs> for you to give as a gift to a loved one that's like about that loved one and how much you care about them or about your relationship with them or like maybe about another family member you want to celebrate. I mean, any personal situation in your life that you would like to train Shannon's songwriting and singing acumen on in a laser-like <laughs> fashion, like that's a thing that you can actually do. That's like a superpower that you can grant yourself if you would like, <laughs> you know? Like that's a really magical level up that like not everyone just gets to do. But that's a thing that you really actually could do if you want. If you're curious about how that works, just send Shannon a message. Shannon at MisfitStars.com is her email address. Shannon at MisfitStars.com. And you can just ask her to send you info on it and she'll do that. And then you can kind of go from there. Sounds great. We still have eight, kind of eight slots available. Uh, of the 10 that we allocated for this holiday season. And it's not even the holiday season, right? <laughs> I mean, like... How about fall? We're talking yeah. about fall. <laughs> yeah. We were in a big box store just like yesterday and they already had like Christmas stuff up. I know. It's not even well, freaking Halloween yet. Some people are planning ahead. Just like some people are planning ahead with a personal song. Oh my gosh, you're so right. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, you know, when, when I wrote this song, I wrote the song at the holidays in 2018, yeah. but this mom didn't give the song to her daughter until her birthday, which was in the spring. Mm. So like she was really planning ahead. Yeah. So you could plan ahead and you could get yourself a light up snowman at Costco. Mm -hmm. And you could also get this personal song going. If you know someone, someone with you know. some like good electronic skills, you could actually wire it so the snowman sings the song. <laughs> Just throw that out there. <laughs> Push a little button on the snowman's hand, and actually, it's a Shannon Curtis personal song. Whoa. And its mouth moves. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> That'd be really creepy. That's a whole other level. Yeah. Uh, my email address <laughs> is shannon at misfitstars.com. If you'd like me to send you info on uh, it, just the details, the pricing, and the options we have available, I'll do that. Yeah. Would love to. Okay, let's take a short break. Yes. And then when we come back, Jamie, are you ready to share with us your recovery origin story? I'm ready. I can do it. All right. Can't wait. Okay. Back in a sec. with horses. You know, 
It has a picture of a bat, but it always sounds more like scary horses to me. Oh, yeah. That was not the best, and we're back. Do it again. Do it in the second one. And we're back. Oh, oh, oh. that was good. Heck yeah. Clock tower? Oh, yeah. Scary clock tower. Scary clock tower announcing the return of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> totally. So in the, in the second half of this podcast, we're going to, uh, this is the, uh, I guess now third mm-hmm. uh, podcast in our little mini series about recovery and sobriety. Yes. Um, it sort of accidentally started a couple weeks ago when Jamie <laughs> shared about sort of his personal inventory that he did. Um, and and then that led us into, you know, we should maybe just like dive back into this a little bit more. So last week I shared my recovery origin story mm-hmm. and we're going to do Jamie's recovery origin story this week. You know what? As soon as we were done recording last week, I like had a whole big old, big old long list of things I want to talk about for part two of mine. Like I was Great. always like, oh my gosh, yes, I can't wait to talk about this and this and this and this Hopefully and this. Hopefully you wrote them down. Oh yeah, I did. Oh I, nice. So, so organized. Prepared. That's great. Yeah. I know. But um, so we're going to continue with this after this week. This is just, you know, as mine was last week, and I'm not sure exactly what your notes entail here, but I sort of like told my story up until the time was when I sort of like entered, um, entered recovery. Yeah. Um, and I, You'll do whatever you do, but we're getting, the point is we're going to continue because the origin story is just that. It's just the beginning. It's yeah. the first part. Um, the really like good stuff about recovery comes when you start doing the work mm-hmm. and you start getting to see the results in your life. And so I'm super excited to continue this, um, this conversation yeah. even beyond this week. But I'm also really looking forward to hearing you tell your story. I know your story. Yeah. And you've shared your story publicly quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always really, it's just always really great to hear it again and to hear your current interpretation of the story too, you know, right. or your current relationship with it. Or you like know? what I'm choosing to focus on yeah. or even not choosing, but like subconsciously focusing on in the moment. Like exactly. it takes different forms. Definitely. So, yeah. And you know, from my perspective, it's also good to, to go back to the story every so often, just use it as a touchstone, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. I think the people who try to put their story in their past mm. are the people who eventually have it come up and confront them yeah. at the moment they least want it to. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Anytime you try to like hide something like under the bed, it's going to come back out. Yeah. You know? And that's the last thing I want. So I totally. know that like, you know, being present with where I come from mm-hmm. with this, you know? keeping touch with who I was before I made the changes I made in my life, yeah. that's real healthy for me because yeah. it doesn't fully inoculate me from returning to that behavior, but it makes it way, way less likely. And that's what we're looking for. Yeah, well, because don't you think that like secrets and stuff that we try to shove in the past or shove under the rug, like those are just shame magnets, mm-hmm. you know? Like those are the, those are the things that that accumulate shame around them. And that is like the number one thing that drives the unhealthy behavior from which we're trying to recover. <laughs> yeah. You know, shame is is like the culprit always. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, here we go. Let, let's hear your story. And it's fun. Well, thank you. Uh, so it's funny that you would uh, sort of set it up that way because literally the first word in my notes is the word shame. Ah. <laughs> the, my, first note wow. says, my first note says shame and fear. Oh. 
Um, and that's really important for me to sort of center at the very beginning of sharing about my story. So first of all, story, right? So what does a story even mean in this context? I want to kind of address that because mm. what that means for me has really kind of shifted over the course of my sobriety also. Mm. When I was in earlier sobriety and I was surrounded by people who were more in early sobriety, you mm-hmm. know, like different, I got sober in AA and you go to meetings, there's other work that you do and the important work you do outside of the meetings mm-hmm. with someone you met at the meetings, that's what the meetings are for, is to get community and fellowship and also to meet the people who will help you the most through it, yeah. you know? to make your sobriety friends who will help you on your journey in that way. But, you know, different types of meetings attract different levels of people. I mean, you'll have a a variety of people at any meeting, but, like, there are definitely meetings that are more old-timers meetings, you know, where everyone just has a bunch of sobriety. And there's definitely meetings that are more like newcomer meetings where where the average length of sobriety is much, much less, you know? And I started out at that second kind of meetings because I was a newcomer. Uh And I wanted to be around people who were like me because you want to be around people who are kind of where... You could identify with them. Yeah. If they're at a similar point in their journey as you are in yours, then you just naturally relate better, you know, and it makes for a good community in that way. And so, you know, I was hearing a lot of stories when I first got sober that you might call drunkologues. Right? Drunkalogs. Mm-hmm. That's like a little term that we that we have for mm-hmm. those, you know, which is really just people going back and like talking about, well, I did this and I did this and I was so fucked up and I did this and I did that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's important in one way, to hear those details of what it was like for the person before they got sober. Mm. Just the really bloody, knockdown, drag out, like mm-hmm. this is the kind of drunk I was. It's good to hear those kind mm-hmm. of stories for a newcomer especially because you can see somebody who is no longer acting like that but describing that behavior. And if they are telling something that's a lot like your story, if what they're describing resonates a lot with how you acted, Mm. then you trust that person Mm. and that trust allows you to establish a relationship not just with them, but with the group at large and to feel more a part of it so you can feel more confident and secure in being vulnerable with those people and doing that work with them. Right, I mean, you you can also see, oh man, that person did some shitty stuff just like I did and they're sober, so maybe I can be too. It gives you hope. Yeah. It's really, really inspiring. Mm Uh, you know, so the the broad contours of my story, uh, you know, is kind of where I more want to spend time these days when I'm talking about it. Mm. Because, you know, the specifics are different for every single person. Mm. Uh, and I'll touch on some of mine just because they helped shape who I was in that mm. time, which then subsequently shaped who I became mm-hmm. <laughs> after I got sober, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but it's important also for me just to sort of linger mostly on what the the feelings were, because that's the thing about it. Yeah, you know, for me. absolutely. Um, my, my thing was that I always felt different, just like I didn't fit in. Mm. Always. It, is, it has been a lingering condi- condition in my life from since I have conscious memory. Mm. I've just always felt weird. I've always felt like an outsider. Mm. I've always just felt like, not like something's wrong with me necessarily, but just like I don't fit in. Like, like I wish I fit in more, mm. you know? There's a loneliness when you feel like you don't fit, mm. fit in. There's a loneliness to feeling different, mm-hmm. you know? Eventually you can, you know, if you're lucky, I was lucky, uh, you can learn to how to celebrate your differences. I'm esoteric. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And not just with $10 words, but with a genuine (laughs) love for yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but man, when I started my life off, uh, I just, I felt different from, from the word go. That was a defining characteristic Mm. for me. Uh, how did that manifest early on? Do you remember? And if I'm throwing you off course, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, you know, I just always 
felt weird. There was the way it manifested. I think I could best describe in a single word is dissonance. Mm. Like I always felt internally like I liked who I was. Like I was pretty cool. I thought I was funny. I thought I was, you know, you know, five year old me. I thought I was handsome and funny, you know. <laughs> but then, like, what I would see mirrored back to me from the interactions I had with my peers didn't necessarily reflect how I felt about myself. Mm. Like I would think I was being funny and smart and helpful. And I would get feedback that I was not being those things, that I was being mm. annoying, mm. you know, mm. that I was being a smarty pants, that I was a know-it-all, mm. that, you know, that I was actually not ingratiating myself to my peer group with my displays of intelligence and wit that I thought I was making, mm -hmm. but rather achieving quite the opposite, you know? And that constant mm. dissonance between, like, how I thought I was acting and the way it seemed like I was acting... Mm. You know, it was really hard for me to make sense of because mm. I was just like, I'm just being me. You know what I mean? When you're like five or whatever, like you're just being you. Yeah. Like you're not trying to jerk people around yet, <laughs> probably, you know? Um, I mean, that came later. I certainly was all way into that, but like it wasn't like this overt thing when I was in kindergarten, you know what I right. mean? Yeah, I was just trying to be me. But, and you know, I definitely had some friends, but I definitely also had some people who just like didn't like me. But I, I liked them. I wanted mm. to like them, you know? And that's hard. It was hard for me to deal with because, like, I wanted to be liked, Yeah, you know? Um, throughout my childhood, this persisted. Uh, I was nerdy. Uh, I was a very, very late bloomer. Uh, you know, I still, I'm, I'm, you know, 48 now, and I look like I'm, I'm in my late 30s, <laughs> you know? When I was, like, 12, I looked like I was, like, eight. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, very, very late bloomer, which means that I was not attractive to uh, the people who I hoped to be attractive to mm -hmm. when that started being a thing, you know, when you're 10, 11, 12, yeah. you know, you, if you're a heterosexual presenting boy, you want girls to be into you, yeah. you know? Yeah. And they were not. Yeah. None of them were mm. in that way. I had lots and lots of, like, female friends, mm. Um, but I did not have any female friends who wanted to be more than friends, yeah. which was very hard because mm -hmm. I had well, like some of my closest friends uh, like hit puberty really early and were like attractive and charismatic. And I looked like I was four years younger than them when we were the yeah. same age. Yeah. And like, it was just hard, you know? Um, there was a complicating factor uh, that happened right in that kind of puberty middle school sort of time. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was 11 years old, I had a close family member who was arrested, uh, prosecuted, and ultimately jailed for many years for committing a pretty shocking series of sex crimes. Mm. Uh, and I grew up in a really, really small town. I grew up in a 700 person town mm. in the middle of Vermont. There were like six other 700 person towns like mm -hmm. in its little school district, the unified school district. So it was like 5,000 people total. Mm -hmm. But even that is tiny, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And my immediate town was so much smaller. It's the kind of town where everybody knows everybody yeah. and knows everything about everyone and has opinions. Yeah. Um, you know, and because of the character traits that I had alluded to a couple of minutes ago, yeah. where I was kind of like, I was very intellectual. I was kind of a know-it-all, you know, like an, if you know it, show it type. <laughs> um, 
which didn't win me a ton of friends. As you can imagine, there were definitely some people, I think, who felt pretty resentful toward me. Mm. Uh, my family was one of the better off families in a town that had a lot of poverty. Mm. Rural Vermont, uh, to this day, can still have a lot of poverty, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the flip side is you don't necessarily need a whole, you don't need as much to survive there monetarily as you would like in a city or something. Like, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of land. So like you can grow food and mm-hmm. you can be poor and still get by, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a glamorous existence, but it can work, mm-hmm. but it still is hard for people. You know what I mean? Yeah. My family didn't experience that. Mm-hmm. My dad was successful financially a uh, business venture when he, when, when kind of when he first had me, you know? Right. So I always grew up like with, with, not really anything to want for, you know? Mm. And that, of course, can make people feel resentful toward you. I wasn't a Mm. dick about it or anything like that, you know? Mm. I wasn't like Richie Rich. My parents didn't treat us like that. But, like, we lived in a nice house and my dad drove a nice car and, you know... I'd never had to wear clothes with holes in them. Ironically, because it was the early 80s, I wish I had more clothes with holes in them because that punky fashion was just coming in and my mom would not let it happen. So I was, you know, a little resentful about that too. Yeah. Um, But, you know... I had a really, really hard time in the first part of high school because of this situation I just described, you know? Yeah, yeah. Everybody, like all the kids who had just sort of abstractly resented me, but in a way that you couldn't really get a lot of traction for, now had something they could really like pin on me. Oh, And it was really, really brutal for me. And I was already insecure, like I've mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really kind of made my life really, really brutal. I had suffered a lot of physical abuse, you know, when I was 11, 12, 13. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like being shoved into lockers randomly all day long, you know? Like in the movies. Yeah, like in the movies, yeah. Like not stuffed into a locker, but just shoved up against, yeah, just no, in I passing, mean. elbowed, tripped, pushed from behind, oh you know? Sign stuck on my back. Just like all that kind of really classic uh, cliche yes. movie stuff. It was really, it was very, very painful. Because oh. like anybody, I just wanted to get along and I just wanted to have friends and not have my life be too ter- terribly traumatic. Mm-hmm. It's hard when you're 11, 12, 13. Like everything is hard, mm-hmm. you know, and made much, much more so by all the hormones. And it's just, you know, it was a rough time. Mm-hmm. Um so there was that kind of context. I definitely had mm. a lot of, I felt a lot of shame because of that situation. Yeah. I felt a lot of fear because of that situation. Mm. And I also felt a lot of shame and fear because like this situation was in all of the papers. I mean, for like a year and a half, mm-hmm. like every week yeah. for a year and a half, you know, Local it was, news, oh I yeah. Imagine. And on the TV, big yeah. story, uh, like it was relentless. Like we had people like drive, I grew up on a dirt road. I mean, our nearest neighbor was an eighth of a mile away. It was just, it was the boonies. It was rural Vermont, you know? Yeah. And like, we had people like showing up outside our house at one in the morning, like stopping the car in front of our house and throwing shit at our house. Oh my god! You know what I mean? Like egging the house in the garage while we were home in the middle of the night. Mm. Like, which is almost like a horror movie when you're 11, you know? Yeah, no super, That's super, very scary. Very, very scary. Um, so that was really a rough time that made me just feel incredible amounts of shame, incredible amounts of fear. And I didn't really have a, a productive or healthy outlet for that. Yeah. Um, So on a parallel track, I also want to acknowledge that there is probably a genetic component to my alcoholism also. Mm. Uh, You know, I got drunk the first time I tasted alcohol. Mm. I was six. 
Wow. I was six years old. My mom had a piano recital. Uh, <laughs> she was like a, a classical piano player. Yeah. She had a little piano uh-huh. recital and there was like a little reception afterwards and there was like a table that had like a little, like the plastic champagne glasses, you know, yeah. the, the click together bottoms and tops, yeah. you know. Uh, and one half was ginger ale and one half was champagne. And when you're six, they look exactly the same. Of course. And I grabbed one from the wrong side and drank it down and I loved it. And I realized a bit later, it made me feel interesting. So I had another one and I had another one. I probably had five or six champagnes Wow! at age six. I, I mean, I distinctly remember drunkenly trying to crawl up the back stairs, like to get to my bedroom. Six I was six. Old. Like there was something intuitive inside of me that the first, literally the first time I tasted alcohol mm-hmm. at an age that drunkenness wasn't even part of my vocabulary. Right. There was something instinctive in me that was like, this makes me feel a way that I like. This helps. This is a missing piece for me. Yeah. You know? And that's a fairly common, I've, I've gone to open AA meetings with yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Open meetings are meetings where people who are not identifying as alcoholics can attend. Yeah. And it's great for someone like me when I couldn't find a good CODA meeting to go to, but I still wanted a meeting atmosphere to be able to go to an AA meeting and feel like I've gotten, you know, that experience. But I've heard a lot of stories like that. It seems like that's a pretty common thing for alcoholics that the first time they tasted alcohol was they got drunk. Yeah. I mean, it it felt for me like a very similar category of feeling to like when I met you, Mm. you know, just like an immediate like, this is a thing for me. (laughs) You know, <laughs> this is this is something I need in my life. This yeah. is something that's always been missing, and here it is. Aww. You know, I mean, I'm glad you felt that way about me, but <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting comparison. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing with you is healthy. Yes. But like the thing with alcohol was that powerful and strong. Right. It right. had that immediacy of that like healthy primal right. urge. And maybe you'll get into this too, but you have a history of alcoholism in your family too. Right? Oh, absolutely. And so there's yeah. that that DNA component. Is it like yeah. probably very real? Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother's side of the family in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like if you took my mom's side of the family, that family tree, and like you colored every branch that was an alcoholic red, you'd have a red tree. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be like a, looking like a tree with red berries. It would be a red tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all, we're all alcoholics. Um, you know, so there is that. And, you know, I never drank socially. Uh, I started drinking for Ernest when I was 15. Okay. But I knew I wanted to drink earlier. I knew from, like, hearing peers, older peers, you know, because when you're 14, you're a freshman. And I was starting to hear uh, people, you know, who were sophomores and juniors talking about drinking parties they'd gone to and how how great being drunk was and how Mm. fun it was. And I just immediately knew again, in an intuitive way that, mm. that this was for me, mm-hmm. that this is something I needed in my life. It, what I perceived was that there would be like a feeling of camaraderie and of acceptance perhaps, right. you know? Right. And so like I was scheming on how to make that happen in my life, like from age 14 or so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with my best friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, my best friend when I was growing up had a also pretty messed up childhood for a different set of reasons. Mm-hmm. Everyone's reasons are different. Everyone's story is different. Mm-hmm. But there can be commonalities in how you feel. And he also felt uh, a lot of shame, a lot of fear, a lot of resentment, you know, mm. had a pretty shitty childhood, you know. We mm. shared that. 
And so he and I were pretty much inseparable by age, you know, 14, 15. And we started scheming in earnest the beginning of sophomore year, uh, just before we were 15, <laughs> on how to make this happen for ourselves. I'm imagining the two of you like meeting after school, making lists of how to, <laughs> making a flow chart to scheme how to get drunk at a party. <laughs> Man, really the flow chart was how to get to the party, oh, right? okay, yeah. Because once you're at the party, you just get a solo cup and you're off. Yeah. But like, you know, when you're young, trying to get invited to like a bigger kid's drinking party, it's not that easy, Right. Yeah. you know? And maybe it is like in a more like suburban or urban setting where like you just hear where the house is and you can just go. Right. But like when it's rural- Small town, like yeah, every, like, yeah. You've got to kind of like know how to get to the random place in the woods where people are meeting sometimes. And also you have already described that you were sort of ostracized, so you weren't- like getting those invitations. Yeah, absolutely. Readily. I was not like number one on everyone's party invite right. list. You know, mm -hmm. I was, I was, I wasn't the get, mm -hmm. um, but you know, we figured it out. <laughs> uh, uh, my best friend had a big sister and she helped us hook it up. Um, <laughs> and, and God bless her, you know, and she looked after us total side note, but she looked after us through all of our drunken escapades when we were kids and she helped and she saved us a mm. lot. And, and I'm very grateful to her for that. So, uh, but that said, we figured out how to get to a party where we could get drunk and we got drunk. Mm -hmm. And for the first, that was my, my first real drinking time. Yeah. I didn't have like a slow ramp up kind of thing. I know that some people who have subsequently ha evolved like problematic relationships with alcohol later in their life started off drinking very casually. Mm. Just I'm going to have a couple drinks, you know, I'm yeah. going to limit it to two. Yeah. I'm going to have three beers at the party. Ooh, you know, yeah. that was never my thing. From this first party, until the day I got sober, every time I drank, I drank as much as I could get my hands on or thought I could get away with in the situation. Wow. You know, period. There was never a moment where I was like, I'm going to have a glass of wine with dinner. Like Shannon, people, Shannon will pour herself a <laughs> glass of wine every so often or she'll like have a beer. And half the time I'll realize that there's like, a quarter of a beer left and she's abandoned an hour ago. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, this is not how you drink. I just don't fundamentally understand or relate to that mode of drinking where you just do it because you genuinely enjoy it, but you don't need to feel the effects. The effects are all I cared about. Yeah. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't so, care about the flavor. I wasn't a connoisseur. Did you ever drink and not, and the result was not, was you not getting drunk? Only because I wasn't able to drink as much as I wanted ah, to. Ah, I see. Okay. That's the only thing that would happen. Like mm. sometimes the party you're at runs out of beer, Got you know, it. Yeah. or what you've stolen from your dad mm. uh, isn't quite enough to get both of you as drunk as you'd hope it would. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, or, you know, later when I was in my like twenties, you know, you can't, it's, you know, you can get shit house drunk on a Tuesday night mm. and go to bed at three in the morning. But if you have a job and you got to get up at eight, you probably shouldn't do that, you know? Right, and that's right. a limiting factor, you got know? It. Like I would so many times just stop drinking at like 10. Like I just have enough of buzz and I just try to like milk that feeling in my brain until I went to sleep. So at least I wasn't going to sleep feeling like I usually felt again, right, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, so two parallel tracks. Uh, definitely like just kind of a messed up childhood that made me feel very uncomfortable, mm. uh, very, I, I dealt with anxiety, I dealt with depression, I dealt with shame, I dealt with fear, and then also a genetic thing. And man, those combined in a really explosive way for me when yeah. I finally got my hands on alcohol, yeah. you know? Uh, 
and then very quickly from there, it was drugs. I mean, that was always kind of part of the plan too, like on that imaginary list we were making. It was for sure just to be, and I'm going to use this terminology because it's how we talked about it at the time. It was to get fucked up. Mm-hmm. That was the point. Yeah. It wasn't to have a convivial social experience with my peers. Mm. I mean- You we, wanted to sort of obliterate yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And I wanted to have really like obliterative adventures uh. also. Like I want, I imagine myself like some 16-year-old Hunter S. Thompson exploring the furthest reaches of the human psyche, you know? I wanted to be extreme I w- because yeah. I felt so small and yeah. I felt so yeah. ordinary and I felt so pitiful and pathetic. But like when I was fucked up, I felt very different than that. Mm. I felt powerful. Mm. I felt charismatic. Mm. I felt adventurous. I felt like people might be almost a little bit scared of how charismatic and extreme and adventurous I was. And I liked that feeling. Mm -hmm. I liked when people worried about me because it meant they were paying attention to me, Mm. you know? And Mm. it meant that I had something over them in a way. Because when someone is worried about you, it's because there is like a power imbalance and they can't help something that Mm. you are doing, Mm -hmm. you know? Oh man, so like early signs of this being sort of a control thing. Oh my God. It was like the one thing in my life that I could control at the time, you know? It was the only time I felt in control was when I was out of control because all the rest of the time things were happening to me, Uh, but this was something I was doing to myself. Right. And I was making it happen and I was in control of it. And that was such a huge part of my journey with yeah. all of this, you know? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to escape from how I felt, yeah, which was constantly uncomfortable, yeah, you know? And I found a way that I could do that. I could mm-hmm. control my feelings. Mm-hmm. It was one of the only ways in which I could control my feelings. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time I felt very out of control of my feelings. They, mm-hmm. they really happened to me. I experienced feelings and emotion as unwelcome intruders, yeah. you know? They just came without warning, without preamble. Mm-hmm. I felt terrified of them. You know, Mm -hmm. when I was feeling nothing really in any one way or another was when I felt the safest when I was a kid Mm. because inevitably when a feeling would come, it would be scary or Mm. bad Mm. or it would be good and then the good feeling would feel like, oh, this feels great and then it would go away and that was terrifying and Mm -hmm. bad, Mm -hmm. you know, but I could control how I felt with with narcotics, (laughs) you know. numbing. With numbing, yeah. So, you know, it wasn't just alcohol. It was anything, anything to change the way I felt. So I got super into pot. I got super into mushrooms. I got super into acid. I had a whole thing with my mom, Xanax, for a while. I was doing that at school. (laughs) Experimented with that. Uh, Ended up like having a pretty bad passing out during second period and knocking over a bunch of desks and getting taken to the ER at like 10 in the morning kind of experience. Yeah, it was just like, and that wasn't even close to a wake-up call. Drove my mom's car into a series of ditches driving around, just obliterated on Xanax, just like really dangerous behavior, Yeah, you know? Like I could have just as easily have like driven into a tree or off of an embankment, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, There were more ditches and embankments, I guess, where I was driving and I just lucked out. But, you know, it was just luck. That's all it was. Um, You know, I did whatever I could get my hands on as much as I could whenever I was able. That was my MO. That's all all there was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was really explicit about that. That was a stated goal. Um, And, you know... I somehow made it into college. So <laughs> I did a good college. I did. I actually, I, well, you know, remember earlier in the story, I was saying how I was always really smart. <laughs> that helped. <laughs> and like school was always really easy for me. Mm-hmm. And so getting into a good college wasn't super hard for me, you yeah. know? And so I did that. And I was really fortunate. Like my parents were of a financial position where they were able to contribute a little bit. I took out also a bunch of student loans, able to make it work, went to college. 
Uh, and I got myself a girlfriend. College is a place where you can reinvent yourself to a certain degree. <laughs> and I didn't have to be that mm. like loser that everybody knew from growing up, from right. childhood, from when I was five, yeah. you know? I could be somebody else. I started growing my hair. I definitely got myself quickly into a party situation. You, you can find parties much easier when you're in college, yeah. you know? And I got myself at the end of freshman year a legitimate girlfriend. Like she was legitimately very attractive. <laughs> and I was very proud of myself because I felt validated in a way that I had not previously felt validated. Mm. Uh, and you know, this is a whole other part of my story because I had felt so lonely, you know, as far as my relationships or decided lack thereof mm -hmm. with girls was going, you know, mm -hmm. in high school relationships for the for the first part of my adult life were not like a selfless thing where I was trying to give to somebody. They were something that I was trying to take from. I was trying to get validated. Yeah. I was trying to get a piece of myself that felt broken fixed. Yeah. Uh, so my college girlfriend, I met her at a time when she, like I, was super into drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, for her, though, it was sort of a healthy experimental bubble in her life, a phase that lasted a couple years. It was college. It was college. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's kind of what some people do in college. Yeah. And honestly, yeah. it's a healthy container for that because there's not a lot of consequences. You can be sort of shielded from real world stuff. Again, incredibly privileged, very lucky. Yeah. Um, she was really into uh, getting high and having sex. And that made me feel great about myself because mm. she was doing that with me. And it was an attractive <laughs> girl. It was an attractive young woman who wanted to have sex with me. Yeah. And that was so incredibly validating for me in a way that I'd never been validated before, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. which was great and also not healthy, not a healthy way to start my adult relationship with sex mm. or with relationships, period. Yeah. You know, that's not a good foundation. Yeah. Um, there was also obviously caring in there and we really like bonded. We were together for eight years. Right. We should not have been. Uh, <laughs> you know, she really lost interest in that uh, drugs and alcohol phase. That tapered for her starting around junior year, you know. Mm -hmm. It did not taper for me. It was accelerating. Mm -hmm. continually. And so there started to be this real disconnect where I just wanted to keep doing the things that we were doing when we met and she wanted to evolve. Mm -hmm. And I did not want to evolve. Mm -hmm. uh, we graduated college. Uh, we moved to the West Coast together mm -hmm. and we just kept growing further and further apart in this way. Uh, you know, I thought when we first started going out that that whole phase would last forever. Just like, this is great. I'm, we're going to party and have sex forever. <laughs> Till the day I die. Done. You know, this <laughs> is great. You know, and I was really resentful when she wanted not to stay static in mm -hmm. her life in that way, when she yeah. just wanted to continue evolving. It's funny because like, I viewed what I was doing as evolving. Like I wanted to be more extreme. I wanted to continue pushing the boundaries. I did not view what she was doing as evolving at all. Oh. I viewed it as regressing. Interesting. You know, yeah. uh, it, I had I did not have any perspective on where she was at with that at all. Mm. Um, she found what my continued interests were <laughs> to be unattractive, you know, yeah. and increasingly so. Because imagine being the sober person essentially now in a relationship where like she would have a beer every once in a while. She would maybe smoke a little pot, but it wasn't a habitual thing. Right. It was a once every once in a while and decreasing kind of thing for yeah. her. I was doing it every single chance I could get. I was feeling held back by the knowledge that she didn't want to do that anymore and yeah. she didn't want me to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. So I would sneak it. 
you know? And so like I just started doing sneaky behavior and compartmentalizing my life and lying about all of it. Oh man. And so, you know, once you start compartmentalizing your life to like sneak getting high or to sneak drinking, it's real easy also with someone who doesn't find you that attractive anymore. Like I was just trying to get messed up all the time. So our sex life just ended. You know what I mean? Like we really didn't have one for the second half of our relationship. Mm -hmm. At the time I thought that was her fault, something she was doing wrong. Retrospectively, I realize it's that I was just acting in a very untrustworthy way that she felt, she found it really scary. Sure. She found it just not cute, not sexy for sure. Yeah. Why would you want to have sex with that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, also like I wasn't having sex with anybody and so I started cheating, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, And that is just, you know, uh, and that of course like increased the shame. Sure, all those like sneaking around, keeping secrets. Yeah, compartmentalizing. That's, all of those it. are all shame magnets. Those are all shame magnets. And so I was just attracting more and more and more shame into my life. And of course, when there's shame, then you're worried you're going to get caught, especially if you're doing like sneaky stuff. Mm-hmm. So there was a the constant fear, constantly like having to remember the lies I was telling and keep my story straight. Yeah. And if something came out, figure out in real time how to just like minimize it or spin it in a way that made it sound like she was crazy. A lot of gaslighting, oh, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. all of this just made me feel really terrible about myself, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I started in a situation where from the very get go early on in my life, I felt shame and fear. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I evolved all these really complex, incredibly unhealthy, compounded coping behaviors yeah. that served really just to, ever increasingly magnify and intensify the shame and the fear, right? right? So I thought they were coping behaviors, but really, if you think about it, a coping behavior would make the thing better, but it made it worse. (laughs) It only made it better temporarily. And the reason it made it better temporarily is because I would forget to think about it. You didn't have to think about it or feel it. You don't feel shame or fear as much of the time, nearly, Mm. when you're high or when you're drunk, when you're you're fucked up. up. Totally. So, you know, I was just doing that. Eventually, we broke up. Mm-hmm. That relationship ended. Uh, I was 26 years old when it ended. I was actually the one who broke it off. I just like I was young. I didn't realize you could break a relationship off <laughs> when it didn't feel good. Yeah. And I also didn't trust myself because I knew deep inside of me that I wasn't healthy and that I probably wasn't making great decisions all the time. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to break up with such an amazing person under those circumstances, like mm-hmm. not trusting my instincts, you know. Mm-hmm. But eventually, I just felt like she was holding me back from the stuff I needed to accomplish in my life, mm-hmm. which was... I needed to get fucked up so much more, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I just felt this thing inside of me Mm. constantly. Like, from 21 to 26, like, that five-year period, I really didn't party very much. Hmm. Not nearly as much as I wanted to because she was holding me back from that. Because, like, that just became not an acceptable thing to do in context of our relationship. We were, like, a serious couple together living together and starting first post-college jobs. And so, you know, I would get blackout throwing up drunk a few times a year for sure. I mean, as many times as I felt like I could get away with contextually, but like not a tenth as much as I wanted to, not a hundredth, you know? Uh, And I felt like shit about myself all the time. The thing I wanted to do that would make me feel better that I knew would make me feel better, I couldn't do in context of my relationship. So I had to end the relationship and I did that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was Jamie Unchained. (laughs) Really? Jamie Unchained. Yeah. Oh no. I spent the next I think five- you should probably give us one of your Halloween sounds. Oh man. Is there something here that looks Jamie like chains? Unchained. What is this one? <laughs> no, that's not the one. How about this one? 
Either way, wow. it's all very scary. Yeah, so that's good. Very, very scary. <laughs> Jamie Unchained. <laughs> Jamie Unchained. I feel like there should be a chain dragging sound. There should like be. Like a crypt sound on this thing. Oh, it- Where is the crypt sound? I'm just like, look at the little icons, <laughs> which are oblique at best, frankly. What is this one? No, that's not it. It's okay. All right, well, I'm just going to put this under a pillow so it doesn't distract too much because that sound goes on for like 30 seconds. (laughs) But here's the thing. Uh, I spent the next five years getting massively fucked up literally every single night because the one thing that was stopping me from engaging that behavior was my relationship. And as soon as I ended the relationship... There was nothing stopping Every me. night? Literally every single night. I mean, wow. seven out of seven nights, 52 out of 52 weeks a year. Wow. Like there wasn't a night that I didn't get somewhere between pretty drunk and obliterated. Wow. I mean, minimally six, seven drinks every single night, wow. you know? But I mean, you build up a tolerance really, really, yeah. really quickly. And also, yeah. I started immediately getting into much heavier drugs. Mm-hmm. I, I got really, really into cocaine pretty immediately. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I've been, again, wanting to get into. Yeah. I've been scheming on this in the same way that I had schemed on alcohol and pot when I was 14, but didn't yeah. do it until I was 15. I've been scheming on cocaine. Wow. I've been hearing good things about cocaine. Wow. You know, and finally, I was able to, I mean, I'd snuck it once or twice, but I had, I had no way to work it into my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I worked a lot of it into my life over that next five-year period. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least a couple times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a really good job for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> foreshadowing. Foreshadowing, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the way it goes when you commit yourself to getting fucked up every single night, when you really let your disease take over in mm. that way, mm-hmm. it accelerates in a way that you can't control anymore. It's got that snowball down a hill kind of effect. Mm. And so really just like the levels and the intensity and the danger factor, they all just kept increasing and increasing and increasing. Mm. I found myself partying with increasingly fucked up people. Just, you know, what they say in the, the big book, you know, seeking lower and lower companionship. Wow, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I was, I was getting myself into increasingly dangerous sexual practices. Mm. Um, you know, when I could, I would, you know, you know, pick up women in a bar or whatever. Mm. I was doing so much unsafe sex. Uh, but also at mm. a certain point, like I was just so fucked up all the time that like the picking people up in a bar thing was not working for me anymore. Cause I was just really mm. a mess. I was mm-hmm. a nightmare. Mm-hmm. So I was just like driving around, like just obliterated out of my mind, just like looking for street prostitutes in sketchy mm-hmm. parts of town, mm-hmm. uh, you know, picking them up, uh, you know, sometimes toward the end, uh, before I got sober, mm-hmm. like literally just picking them up. So I would have someone to do drugs with, uh, well, I, I mean, I had multiple situations. I had this one situation where I was like literally parked by a toxic waste dump with a prostitute in the passenger seat. Uh, and like she was shooting heroin into her neck and she OD'd. Oh gosh. And I was like doing cocaine and meth and just drinking and smoking cigarettes. And I look over and she just like OD'd, passed out, like literally with a needle hanging out of her neck in the passenger side of the car. I mean, oh like my God. incredibly sketchy situations, like wow. really sketchy situations situations where I was putting myself in physical danger with like pimps like a quarter of a block away like oh, in, like in a weird alley somewhere I mean like really really retrospectively terrifying stuff you mm-hmm. know at the time it just felt adventurous it felt extreme you know right I was gonna say you, you set out to be as extreme as you could be yeah seriously you um you know I was just doing a lot of Dangerous, dangerous stuff with myself. Mm-hmm. 
I got fired from my job. Uh, should have been a wake-up call for me. Absolutely wasn't. I was like, I, I didn't like this job anyway. Mm. You know, it was at a bank. Fuck banks, mm. you know? Uh, because I'm sneaky, I managed, even though I got fired for cause, like I, I, mean, I was doing meth at work, you know what I mean? I deserved it to be fired. Yeah. Uh, and there, to be fair, the only reason I was doing meth at work is because it was the only way to bring myself back up to some level of functionality after drinking till four in the morning. Right. And showing up for work at 10. Right. Should have been 9.30, but we let things slide a bit, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, collecting unemployment uh, and having an alcohol and drug problem is both amazing and frustrating. It's amazing because you don't have to get up for anything. You still have some money. Frustrating because it's not enough money. But really all it meant is that I just isolated myself more. I couldn't go to bars anymore. I didn't have that kind of budget, but I could drink rock gut liquor, you oh, know? Man. So I just found myself- <laughs> Why do they call it rock gut? <laughs> mm, yeah, right. Um, you know, I was unemployed on and off for the last couple years before I got sober. Mm -hmm. uh, honestly, a lot of that was a blur. And, you know, I want to... I want to be really clear about the idea that, like, I've just shared parts of what you could almost call, like, a drunkalogue, you know? Yeah. And it's important, I think, to share elements of how you acted before you got sober, only because, you know... My hope is that someone would be hearing this and might relate to part of it. I, I recognize that I was a pretty low bottom drunk. Like I got real, real, real bad before yeah. I got sober. I got way down. I got real low. That's what a low bottom drunk yeah. means, you know? My, you have to find a bottom, they say, before you can get sober. Mm. Um, for some people, it's like not that bad. For me, it was really bad. Mm -hmm. um, like my friend that I shared last week who recommended Coda to mm -hmm. me, her quote unquote bottom was was nothing like yours. No. I mean, she she was, uh, you know, had a good job, didn't ever get fired, but, but just had come to a realization that that the amount of, that the alcohol she was drinking was controlling her more than she was controlling it. Yes. Like she, she just reached a place where she realized she was out of control yeah. for her. Yeah. It didn't get anywhere close to what your situation yes. was, but and, yeah. And that's a really good point, and it kind of leads into the point I want to make here, which is that, Everybody's story is different, and the s more extreme stories are not more valid. I am not a more valid alcoholic. Uh. I am not a better alcoholic. <laughs> I am not more of an alcoholic than you if your story is not as extreme as mine. Yeah. I just had a rougher go of it, mm -hmm. you know? But maybe, maybe not, because the point isn't really the behavior. The point isn't the adventures you had or the misadventures you had. Right. The point is how you felt on the inside. Yeah. You know? And that's really what I want to lean on here. Uh, I felt like a piece of shit. Mm. I felt unlovable and mm. a lot of the time unloved, which is weird because I had a lot of people that loved me, really, mm -hmm. looking back on it. But like, it wasn't a form of love that I was able to bring on board. I didn't have a receptor for healthy love in that time. Oh, yeah. I didn't have anything that that could attach to. There was nothing that allowed that to permeate into me in a resonant or long-lasting way. Yeah. Like, I would feel people's affection for me and I would just deflect it off. It would yeah. just bounce off me. Yeah. You know? Uh, the only validation that felt to me like something that even, even fleetingly addressed the hole inside of me was, uh, was sexual or being high, being yeah. fucked up. That's mm -hmm. it. Those are the mm -hmm. only two times, those are the only things that made me feel anything approaching okay, even for a moment. Mm. But toward the end, honestly, I didn't even really feel okay, uh, you know, m much of the time. Mm. Every single morning I woke up wanting to die, mm. you know, 
dragging myself at first to a job that I hated, you know, unable to function at it, embarrassed, mm-hmm. paranoid, fearful of getting fired, also fearful of staying, just like, you know, mm. just ashamed. I felt so much shame mm. all of the time. Mm. Uh, I, I just, I felt really, really, really bad. I felt really low. Mm-hmm. And I also felt increasingly scared because the one thing that had always worked for me to make me feel better increasingly wasn't working. Right. You know, uh, alcohol wasn't really working anymore. Like I, by the end of my time drinking, right before I got sober, I mean, for the last couple of years, I was drinking 20 to 30 drinks a day, every single day. Wow. I would, I would literally like get off from work. I would walk a block and a half to the, my little local bar by my work, my little hangout there. And literally like in the first hour I was there, I would have like five double shots of Jim Beam and five beers. Wow. I mean, so what is that? 15 drinks? Wow. In the first hour. That would get the shakes to stop. That would get me feeling mm. stable. It would bring my heart rate down. It would make the anxiety go away. Wow. You know? Mm-hmm. I just felt anxious and panicky all of the time. Mm-hmm. And I had tremors all the time. It was, it was really, you know, and again, in retrospect, scary. It was scary at the time, too. Mm-hmm. I didn't really realize as much as I do now. How I, I'm more scared of it now than I was then, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and that would just be in the first hour. That would get me till 6 p.m. And then I would still have until 2 a.m. or whatever, you know? Mm. And this one, I was still working, you know? It was, it was just crazy, crazy behavior. And on the weekends, forget about it. I would start doing cocaine at 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. on Friday. And I would, like, not go to sleep at all, maybe, Friday night. Mm. Just keep going mm. all the way through the next day, all the way through the next night. Wow. Sometimes a little meth in there to help get me through that little lull that you experience after not having slept for, like, 30 hours, wow. you know? Eventually, cocaine stopped really kind of working for me. It just didn't really have the same magic feeling that it did before. Mm-hmm. It just made me feel jittery and anxious, so I started doing meth, mm-hmm. um, which makes you feel like Superman. There is also a downside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, the Superman feeling only lasts for so long, and then you feel unbelievably anxious. Also, you don't sleep, and when you don't sleep, you start making increasingly bad decisions. Yeah. Uh, I made a lot of bad decisions. Yeah. I did a lot of sketchy things, with a lot of sketchy people, I mean, I, dr- I drove drunk every single day, every single night for literally five years. Wow. I, did, I never got arrested. I never got a ticket. I just, I had some kind of like really weird guardian angel type of situation or something happening. Like No accidents or anything? Nothing, nothing. Wow. Nothing. Didn't run anybody over in my car. <laughs> like I could just as easily be in prison right now for mm-hmm. vehicular man- like manslaughter. Yeah. I mean, it would probably be a homicide charge because of how drunk I was. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's no way that's not premeditated, you know? <laughs> um, really, really insane, like the literal definition of the word insane. Like I don't use the word insane much because I find that that can be like if you just throw it around casually, insulting to people with mental wellness issues. But I was acting in an insane way. I was not sane. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, It was terrifying. I was scared all of the time. Uh, And that's that's the biggest thing that I really want to kind of lean on. Mm. Um, It's... It, it, my story is extraordinary. In, in my story is extraordinary. I think just in terms of the shocking levels it went to, like yeah. the, the depths it went to. Like I am admittedly one of the more extreme cases out there, and it was a goal. So you know, proud <laughs> achieving goals out there. <laughs> so that felt good. <laughs> no, no kidding. But um, but you know, anybody that experiences fear or shame or anxiety or depression. And 
figures out an unhealthy way to cope with it, they're dealing with the same thing that I dealt with. Right. It doesn't have to look like how it looked for me. It doesn't have the same symptoms. Yeah. It doesn't have to have the yeah. same, like, they don't have they don't have to have taken the same actions in their lives. Mm-hmm. They don't have to have done the same things I did. It's a personal journey. The point is that people who are built like me, we have a hole inside of us. You had one too, you know? You filled yours with unhealthy relationships, you know? When when you got affection and love and praise, that filled up your empty hole inside of you. You know, that's mm-hmm. what you were describing last week. For me, my hole was a different shape and size, so I filled it in different ways. Mm-hmm. But the point isn't the ways, the point is the hole. Right. That's the point. That's what joins all of us together, people who experience stuff like this, you right. know? And I want to speak directly to the listeners right now. Like, if you're listening to this, and you know maybe you're maybe you have a secret journey with some of this kind of stuff with shame or with fear or with not feeling like you belong or not feeling like you fit in with anxiety with depression and you have found a self-medication pattern that feels unhealthy to you but you don't know anything different you and I are the same person Mm. you and I have had the same journey Mm -hmm. I'm just on a different phase of it I'm kind of in a having turned a corner and been on a much healthier path for 17 years kind of journey, you know, I'm I'm on that part of the journey, but I started out in the same place as you, you know, Uh, and especially like with a more extreme story like mine, I think it's much more like increasingly important to lean on that commonality. Like you don't have to be extreme like I was with all this stuff to have an equally devastating personal experience, Mm -hmm. you know, it's about the interior monologue. It's Mm. about that feeling bad about yourself, Mm. you know, and also like feeling bad about the coping mechanisms that you have just sort of invented, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the point of it. So, you know, that's kind of my phase one part of the story. That is what brought me up to the point where I got sober. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe as you did with your story last week, that would be a good time. This would be a good place for me to pause you know, on mine. Sure. Um, and, you know, I can pick up in a phase two of my story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, there's a common format in AA or any kind of A, any kind of anonymous program, 12-step program, the share. You know, people tell you to talk about what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Mm-hmm. It's like a three-act play. It's Shakespearean in scope, yeah. right? <laughs> And so you've just heard really the first part of my story, the first, the first of the three acts. You know, that's the that's the what it was like for me. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. It was really, really scary. I felt scared all the time. And as I got to the end of like right before I got sober, it was that's a, that's where it was at the worst. I just was waiting to die. Mm. That's how I would sum it up. Like, I didn't see it changing. I knew I needed to change. Mm. I knew that I was an alcoholic. By the last couple years of of my alcoholism, I knew it deep in my bones. Mm. And it wasn't just from people telling me. They were telling me. But it was also just something I knew as a fundamental truth for myself. Like, I knew that I had a problem. I also knew I couldn't do anything about it. Mm. I knew knew the grip it had on me. Mm -hmm. I would wake up so many mornings just feeling remorseful, feeling terrible about myself, feeling hungover, feeling just low, so low. And I would swear to myself, I've got to make a change. This is it. That was the last day. I'm making a change today. And I would leave work and like my feet, like as though they were being controlled like by a puppet master, would they would walk me into that bar, and I would hear the words coming out of my mouth, uh, you know, give me, give me a Jim Beam and a Bud, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't even need to, need to say it because the bartender already knew, you know what I mean? Because yeah. I was that kind of a drunk. But like, it was as though it was happening in a way that I couldn't control. The mm-hmm. very thing that I did to start, starting out, I was doing it to exert control over my circumstances, right. to exert control over how I felt. And by the right. end, it was controlling me and I couldn't control it. And it was just, it was acting, it was like, it was like I was a computer with a virus. Right. And like, I was just doing things I'm not supposed to do. Like, intellectually I knew like I don't want to do this but mm. I would just go do it I couldn't stop it I literally I would literally walk into the bar going I'm not doing this isn't happening I'm not doing this wow and I would do it wow and then it would just be another day I, like I had absolutely no control and when you're in a situation that feels untenable mm. you know it has to end and you also know you can't end it the only option really is death that that would be yeah. the thing that would end it yeah you know and so I was just, I kind of imagined that I was going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, the way I was drinking, the way I was taking drugs, uh, I, I presumed that it eventually would end in death somehow, mm. you know, probably an overdose or maybe, you know, some kind of really bad situation I got myself into, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of, that's, that's the path I thought I was on. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Man, I'm struck by that by that statement you made about how the thing that you started doing as a way to exert control over the bad feelings you were having ended up controlling you yeah. and making those feelings worse all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what a vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. It did not work out the way I was planning. No, no. I mean, planning might be... It's funny because actually, I re- like I said, I really did plan this stuff too. Mm-hmm. I had an agenda. I had made a mental list. Yeah. And I was just knocking off list items. I was doing I was punching out my my bullet points, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It did not go the way I was hoping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm eager to hear part 2. Yeah. It's a, I mean, like I said, I've heard your story before and even tonight hearing you talk about it, I I heard heard different shades than I had heard before mm. also. Um but I really appreciate you sharing so openly and vulnerably. Well, gosh, thanks. With me and with all of our listeners. And um, I really hope it was of service to people. You know what I mean? Every time I tell my story, I never feel like I, I always feel like I could do it better. Oh my gosh, you did a great job. Well, I mean, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing that I always these days just try to make a point of leaning on more than anything is just the how it felt. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. and that, that's really it. Mm -hmm. Um, it felt really bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I, just, I want to go back and hug five-year-old you who felt like he didn't fit in, and thirteen-year-old <sighs> you who felt ostracized, mm. and twenty-five-year-old you who was starting to get really lost. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, um, and I know that that your work that you have done in your program has addressed all those times in your life. And mm-hmm. it'll be it'll be interesting to hear your take on what the, the next phase was for you. Yeah. The, the what happened part. Yeah, absolutely. Um, y'all, thank you so much for listening. Jamie, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing. Mm-hmm. Thank you all for listening. Um, if any of you listening is hearing this story and hearing Jamie's experience and feeling like, man, I really relate to that or I have some thoughts about that or I have questions about that, Um, and you feel like reaching out and talking about those feelings, thoughts, or questions with either of us, we would really love to hear from you. Um, This is why we're doing this, (laughs) is to make connections with other people who um, might be 
struggling in some way and um, and maybe could uh, benefit from knowing that you're not alone. Um, so if you'd like to message either one of us, you can do that. Uh, Jamie is at jamie at misfitstars.com. I'm at shannon at misfitstars.com. And either one of us would just love to hear from you um, if yeah. you've got something that you want to share or ask or just say. That that would be great. Yep. Um, uh, I think that's it for this week. I think so. We'll be back next week. Um, did you have something else to add? No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, next week, we'll dive into part two of my story. Wow. Um, th- it's funny. I don't know that I have really a story so much. There's, I mean, there's some story elements, but there's more just I was so eager to share all the stuff I learned yes. when I got into recovery. Like, yeah. there's so much good stuff. <laughs> well, and yeah, and, that's that's really it. I mean, the what the what happened yeah. part is, a lot of that's internal. Yeah, but there's so much. Like, the story goes from external to internal yeah. in Act 2. Yeah, for, for sure. I think for everybody mm-hmm. who takes this journey. Yeah, so I'm I, I'm excited to share that stuff with you. Um, and, and then two weeks from now we'll get into Jamie's part two and we'll just go from there because I'm sure that this conversation will continue but thank you so much for for staying tuned in to us this week and um, we'll we'll do some more next week but until then um, please take good care of yourselves and be good to each other yeah we love you all very much and we will see you soon bye bye bye